And go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis 9. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 7. Genesis 9. Genesis 9, Pew Bible, page 7. And let's pray for help before we read God's Word. Oh Lord, your Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. Lord, it's by your Word that you give us life. It's by your Word that you give us faith and transform us. And we pray that that ministry would take place right now. Please work by your Spirit. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. Uh, please work in me by your spirit that I might speak as one speaking the very oracles of God. Lord, use this time to save and to transform your people. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Genesis 9, read verses 8 through 17 with me. This is the word of God. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you, for all future generations." I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. May God give us ears to hear his word. Our culture is currently experiencing a crisis of trust. Have you seen this? Increasingly, nobody seems to trust anybody. You can't trust politicians, can't trust the media, can't trust advertisers, can't trust salesmen, can't trust what you find on the internet. Can't trust Facebook, can't trust Google, can't trust YouTube. Trust in our society is at an all-time low, and it's diminishing rapidly every day. Now, don't raise your hands here, but just ask yourself, the first time you meet somebody these days, do you instinctively trust them or distrust them? Again, don't raise your hands, but the first time you say meet a new coworker, or a new business associate, or a, a new say, neighbor in your neighborhood, uh, do you instinctively trust them and think the best of them, or are you a little bit suspicious and wonder if they're there to manipulate you? Increasingly, the majority of Americans are saying their first instinct is to distrust rather than to trust. Now, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to understand that if there is pervasive mistrust in a society, that society will not last long. If I can't trust you to keep your word, if I can't trust you to perform the service you promised to perform, if I can't trust you to do the work you said you're going to do, how in the world is our culture going to last? In a way, widespread lack of trust, it's an omen. It's a prophecy of imminent destruction. I find it interesting that even our world is beginning to notice this. This is not just a Christian idea. 
Commentator David Brooks writes in a very long but very, very thoughtful essay in The Atlantic, he writes this, social trust is a measure of the moral quality of a society, of whether the people and institutions in it are trustworthy, whether they keep their promises and work for the common good. In a restaurant, I trust you to serve untainted fish and you trust me not to skip out on the bill. When people in a society lose faith or trust in their institutions and in each other, the nation collapses. I've spent my career rebutting the idea that America is in decline. But the events of these past six years, and especially of 2020, have made clear that we live in a broken nation. In America, interpersonal trust is in a, cata a catastrophic decline. Today, a majority of Americans say they don't trust other people when they first meet them. The cancer of distrust has spread to every vital organ. Now, listen to this next part. When social trust collapses, nations fail. In an age of distrust, groups look at each other warily, angrily, viciously. Does that sound like today? There is no avoiding the core problem. Unless we can find a way to rebuild trust, our nation is doomed. You sympathize with that? I certainly do. Now, we can discuss and debate how America got this way and if there's any hope for the future. And I'd be glad to discuss this with you further at the door. But for now, I want you to consider a deeper question. Why is reality like this? Why is trust so essential, so vital, that when it's gone, a society simply cannot function? I mean, societies can continue to exist and function without many other good things. Societies can continue to exist and function without, say, financial prosperity, or quality health care, or electricity, or high levels of literacy, or competent leadership, or fine art, or high-speed internet, or a thousand other things. So what is so unique about trust that when it's gone, that civilization is doomed? Well, I'll tell you why the universe is this way. It's because this universe was created by a trustworthy God. It's because this is our Father's world. Our God is a trustworthy God, and he's embedded certain principles in our universe that we ignore to our own peril. Chief among these is trustworthiness. And if there's not a baseline level of trustworthiness, just this sort of general elementary trust, we simply cannot function in God's world. Well, today we're going to be talking about the trustworthiness of God, and more specifically, the promises he made in what's called the Noahic Covenant. The Noahic Covenant, as we're going to see, is this packages of, package of promises. It's made to all humanity, and beyond that, it's really made to all of creation. And since our God is a trustworthy God, a covenant-keeping God, a promise-keeping God, we can live today in the confidence that God will most certainly do everything he's promised in this covenant. Now, just to remind you of the context of this morning's sermon, we conclude today a little mini-series within a larger series. The larger series is the book of Genesis. But within Genesis, we have this account of Noah and the flood. And this is an account which is of enormous, phenomenal value. Because of that, we're spending a total of four sermons talking about Noah and the flood. I, I'll be honest, I did not expect to spend four sermons talking about Noah and the flood, but I've had a great time studying it myself. In this little series, we've talked about the meaning of the flood, the implications of the flood for today, what the flood teaches us about the character of God, the scientific, scientific evidences for the flood, and like I said, today we're going to talk about the Noahic Covenant. Very, very important. I'd encourage you, if you haven't been here for these messages, uh, get on our sermon audio page, either listen to them or watch the videos, uh, because again, the material that we're talking about is very, very vital. Four weeks ago, we overviewed this entire account. We surveyed all of chapters 6 through 9. And we saw the way in which God, in his righteous anger, his holy anger, slayed thousands of men, women, and children because of their sin. That's exactly what we all deserve. 
And like we claimed four weeks ago, that flood is a picture, it's a type of the judgment that's going to come when Jesus comes again. Three weeks ago, we talked about the global scope of the flood. The flood is not this little local thing limited to the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. It really did cover the entire globe. All the high mountains were covered with water. We talked about some biblical and scientific evidences for that, and we also talked about reasons why it's very important to maintain a worldwide flood. Then last week, we talked about the first laws God gave after the flood. After the world had been cleansed, after the human race purified, what were the very first laws he gave? Not surprisingly, they had to do with murder, and then the punishment for murder, the death penalty. That was last week. Now today, we conclude this series by talking about the Noahic Covenant. What is a covenant in the Bible? What's unique about the Noahic Covenant? How should we live in light of these promises? Lord willing, these are the questions we're going to answer this morning. Well, let's begin with a first question. What is a covenant? What is a covenant? Now look at Genesis 9.9. The Lord says there to Noah, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Now, you don't need to be a Bible scholar to understand the idea of the covenant is huge in the Bible. It's huge. The noun covenant or verb to covenant are used well over 300 times in the Bible. We've got the old covenant and the new covenant, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with David, the Mosaic covenant. There's covenants between human individuals, covenants between God and individuals, covenants between nations. Obviously, this is a huge idea that we don't want to get wrong if we want to rightly understand God's word. Well, in its most basic form, this is all that a covenant is. I realize it's a big word, but this is really all that it is. A covenant is a promise or a package of promises that's made more formal by a ceremony. Okay, that's all it is. A promise or a package of promises that's made more solemn, more formal by some sort of ceremony. That's all a covenant is. George Mendenhall, he's dead now, but during his lifetime, he was one of the foremost authorities on covenants uh, in the Bible, and he defined a covenant this way. He said, a covenant is a solemn promise made binding by an oath, which may be either a verbal formula or a symbolic action. Such an action or formula is recognized by both parties as the formal act which binds the actor to fulfill his promise. Now, if any of this sounds vaguely familiar, we did a much longer series on the covenants about six months ago in Wednesday Night Bible Study. I know that many of you found that little series very helpful, very illuminating. By the way, if you want any of the notes from that, talk to me. I can get those to you. Uh, But that's the same definition we used in that series on Wednesday night. Well, covenants, they still exist in our culture today, and we probably have more covenants than you realize. We just don't always call them covenants. Uh, Marriage is probably the best illustration of a covenant today. What do we do in marriage? We make solemn promises. I will love you, I will stay with you till death do us part in sickness uh, or in health. We make these promises, but then we make them more solemn through ceremonies. The exchanging of rings, witnesses, fancy clothing, that sort of thing. It's a covenant. Now, in the Bible, there are basically two types of covenants, and this is important. Two types. There are gracious covenants and conditional covenants, right? Gracious covenants and conditional covenants, and and you kind of got to keep these ideas separate lest they get confused. Now, in a conditional covenant, I promise to do X if you'll do Y. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. Uh, These kind of covenants were incredibly common in the ancient world between a king and his subjects. If you give me, say, 10% of your harvest, I'll protect you from your enemies. But if you don't give me 10% of your harvest, uh, I won't protect you when the enemies come. It's a conditional covenant, and there are those in the Bible. The other type of covenant, the gracious covenant, it's a pure gift, entirely a gift. I will do X no matter what you do. 
No matter if you forget about me, no matter how far you go astray, no matter how, you, you might even forget I exist, I will continue to do X. It's a gracious covenant, a pure gift. Now, obviously, there are a lot of covenants in the Bible, and I'd encourage you to study these thoroughly. I really see, to be honest, I love talking about the covenants, and in part because they form sort of the backbone of the entire storyline of the Bible. The covenants between God and man, they're sort of the superstructure on which the entire storyline of Scripture hangs. Uh, They're like links in a chain pulling us to Jesus and climaxing in his work. So certainly get familiar with them. I'm sure you've heard of some of these covenants. The covenant with Abraham. I promise Abraham, even though you're an old geriatric man, you're going to have children as numerous as, as the sand on the seashore, and those children will one day possess the promised land. There's the Mosaic Covenant made with Israel. So long as Israel keeps the law, they're going to thrive in the promised land. But if they break that law and turn to idols, I'm going to kick them out of the promised land. There's the covenant with David. David's sons would have sons, who'd have sons, who'd have sons, until ultimately the ultimate son of David is born, the Messiah. And then obviously there's the new covenant, which Jesus secured for us in his blood, the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we remind ourselves of that covenant every time we take the Lord's Supper together. So clearly, this is a huge theme, a big concept that's of enormous significance, and I'd encourage you to study it more. But but for now, just get this idea that a covenant is a promise or a package of promises made more formal by a ceremony. Let's talk about our second question. What's unique about the Noahic covenant? Uh, This covenant that we read about here in Genesis 9, what should we know about it and not miss? Now, the first thing I'd like you to see with me is the parties of this covenant. Who makes this covenant with whom? Look at verse 8. God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the field. Now, as you can clearly see, God is the one making the covenant. He's the promise maker. And if you read this section carefully, it's interesting how often God calls this my covenant. Three separate times. It's almost redundant. Verse 9, I establish my covenant. Verse 11, I establish my covenant. Verse 15, I establish my covenant. Clearly, God wants you to know that he is the covenant maker here. But to whom does he make these promises? Who's the recipient? I find this fascinating. It's not just to Noah. It's not just to Noah and his sons. It's not just to believers. It's not just to humans. But what? Verse 10, every living creature. And the stress on this covenant being with every living creature is repeated again and again and again. Verse 12, 13, 15, 16, verse 17. All living creatures are partakers of this covenant. And what's more, it's not just those who came off the ark, but with future generations, those yet unborn. Look at verse 12. The covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. So what that means is that you and I are benefiting from the Noahic Covenant. Christians and non-Christians benefiting from the Noahic Covenant. Your dog or your cat benefiting from the Noahic Covenant. Every human who's ever existed, every animal that's ever walked the earth, all plants, all livestock, cows, sheep, chickens, squirrels, God made these promises to them and more. It's the only covenant like this that I know of anywhere in the Bible that's made not between God and humans, but between God and living creatures. Now, consider with me next the specific promises in this covenant. What specifically does God promise to do? Look at verse 11. I establish my covenant with you. 
that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now that same basic promise is repeated in verse 15. God promises this, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. This is the basic idea. God is going to preserve this world from ever again experiencing a worldwide flood. He's never going to slay everything by means of drowning. That was a one-time experience. Uh, I know it was raining a lot on Friday, and I know that we do get floods here from time to time, but aren't you glad to know that eventually that rain's going to stop and there's never going to ever be a flood to cover the entire planet again? No matter how wicked we become, we never need to fear a worldwide flood. That's what God is promising here. Now, at this point, I want you to consider, is this Noahic covenant, is it gracious or conditional? Gracious. Remember I told you about these two types? There's the one, the if you do X, I'll do Y, but then there's the gracious one, just a pure gift. Which is it? Is it gracious or is it conditional? Yeah, clearly it's gracious. I mean, you look at this passage, there's no conditions anywhere. What's more, it's made not only with the people living then, but with people yet to be and animals yet to be. No matter what is to take place, no matter what's going to occur in the future, I'm going to keep these promises to not flood the earth. It's a pure gift. I think this is partially why we have what we have in Genesis 9.20 and following. If you just glance down at your Bible, a lot of people wonder, why in the world is Genesis 9.20 and following in the Bible? You know, all that about Noah getting drunk and naked and, you know, whatever took place there. Why is that even included in Scripture? Well, I think it's there to illustrate in part how totally gracious this covenant is. No matter how much of a fool Noah makes of himself, I'm going to keep these promises. Noah, no matter what he does, he cannot nullify what I'm going to do. It's all by grace, not by works, so that no one can boast. And this is why God calls this covenant in verse 16, the everlasting covenant. Isn't that interesting? In addition to that, I want you to notice something with me. Flip back a couple pages to Genesis 6-5. Genesis 6-5. This is talking about before the flood. Why did God bring the flood on the human race? Look at Genesis 6-5. There it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay, keep that in mind. That's why this flood is coming, because we're pervasively evil, only thinking evil all the time. But notice something. Jump forward to Genesis 8.21. This is after the flood, after the human race has been wiped out. Look at verse 21. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I've done. Does that phrase there sound familiar? The intention of man's heart is evil from its youth? It's the identical phrase used before the flood. You see, human nature is just as wicked, just as depraved after the flood as it was before. So here's the question. Why doesn't God flood humanity again? I mean, if we deserve it just as much as they did, and I mean, you read the evening news and you can see that we certainly do, why no more flood? If we deserve to drown like they did, why this promise? Because it's all of grace. All of grace realized that every man, woman, child, all animals, all birds, all creeping things were all living in this world entirely by grace. We deserve to be drowned just as much as they did, but God in his grace chose to not do that. And that grace is there, it's there realized to grab your attention, to wake you up, to move you to seek God and to have a relationship with him. William Dumbrell writes in his classic book on the Old Testament covenants, he says this, 
The reference to the heart of man in Genesis 8:21, which remains unchanged by the experience of the flood, refers initially to the eight who have been saved. And this throws into clear relief the nature of Noah's righteousness as something extrinsic to him. Since we are virtually being told that a deluge would be an appropriate response by God to the sin of any age, mankind has been preserved by grace alone. Until the end of time, the continued existence of the created order will thus be grounded simply in the gracious nature of the divine character. Every, you, you may not even have thought this thought until right now, but we have been living every day in undeserved grace, even if you don't even believe there is a God. Every day in undeserved grace, guaranteed in part by the Noahic covenant. Now, the last thing I want you to notice here is the sign of this covenant. What's the external sign, the ceremony that brings solemnity to these promises? Look at verse 12 and notice how emphatic and redundant this is. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now, did you notice how many times God emphasized this is the sign, the bow? Again, it's almost overkill. Verse 13, my bow. Verse 14, the bow. Verse 16, the bow is in the clouds. I think verse 16 kind of summarizes it well when it says, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting, everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. For several thousand years now, the rainbow has been the sign of this covenant. Whenever Christians saw rainbows in the sky, they thought of this covenant of grace that God would never again drown our race in a flood like we deserve. And realize the rainbow will remain the sign of this covenant until Jesus comes again. Now, at this point, we've got to say something about the use of the rainbow by the LGBT movement. You're probably thinking about that right now. You're like, didn't they kind of steal this? Many have remarked about how it's sad, it's ironic that the LGBT movement took what was originally a sign of God's gracious covenant and began using it for their own movement, basically stealing our symbol. You may have seen uh, some of these, it's becoming more popular to have t-shirts, bumper stickers that say something like, reclaim the rainbow. You ever heard that, seen that? Realize, I think that's well-intentioned, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. If you've ever seen the LGBT rainbow, realize it only has six colors and no more than six. And if you look into this, which I did, that was intentional. It has six colors and only six, no more, no less. But how many colors does a real rainbow have? Remember your old Roy G. Biv thing in elementary school? How many is that? Roy G. Biv. Seven. Now, do you know how numbers work in the Bible, six versus seven? There's significance to that. And if you're not getting the significance I'm hinting at, ask me at the door, I can explain it to you. So whenever you see the LGBT flag, realize that's incomplete, partial. But whenever you see a true rainbow in the clouds, realize that that's a reminder of God's complete grace, his free grace, his free grace and mercy. And it's only by that grace and mercy that we continue to exist today. Well, this then is the Noahic covenant, God's special promise that you will preserve humanity, preserve the animal kingdom until Jesus comes again. It's an everlasting covenant that's still in force today. 
And it's a covenant of pure grace, a gift none of us deserve. Well, let's talk about a final question. How should we live today in light of the Noahic covenant? If this covenant is still true and binding today, how then should we live? And I've got four applications for you, quickly. First, regularly praise God that he is keeping his promise to preserve and sustain creation. Regularly praise God that he is keeping his promise to preserve and sustain creation. In your personal prayers, in our congregational prayers, in our songs, let's, let's make this a matter of praise. Now, we take it completely for granted that creation will continue to function in an orderly manner. Every day the sun comes up at a certain time, it goes down at a certain time. In the fall, it starts getting cold. In the spring, it starts getting warm again. We plan seed time and harvest on an annual basis. Our earth continual, continually spins on its axis going around the sun. The universe has functioned that way with little variation for thousands of years. And we just assume things will continue that way on into the future. But what you might not realize is that the Bible explicitly roots the orderliness of creation in the Noahic Covenant. Did you know that? It's only because God is being faithful to these promises in the Noahic Covenant that the sun's going to rise tomorrow. You might even glance at Genesis 8.22. This is sort of alluding to the covenant, kind of a preview of the covenant. Genesis 8.22. There the Lord says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. We won't read it again, but the passage that Dan read for our scripture reading, Jeremiah 33, makes it emphatic that the reason why the universe continues to function as it does is the Noahic covenant. Listen to Gen uh, pardon me, Jeremiah 33, 25. Thus says the Lord, I have established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth. The reason why for thousands of years farmers could plant their crops in the spring and harvest them in the fall is ultimately due to God's faithfulness to this covenant. If God had not made this covenant, we'd have no reason to believe that the sun would come up tomorrow morning, that summer would follow spring, that gravity would continue to exist. If God were not faithful to the Noahic covenant, there'd be no sciences. Think about that. No physics, no mathematics, no probability, no chemistry, no archaeology, no, uh, what's that where they design buildings and build them? Architecture. Ultimately, if God were not faithful, nothing could exist. But since God is faithful, and faithful specifically to the Noahic covenant, our universe continues to function in an orderly manner, and we can rely on that. Listen to old Robert Dabney. If our confidence in God's faithfulness were undermined, the effect would be universally ruinous. Not only would Scripture, with all its doctrines, promises, threatenings, precepts, and predictions, become worthless, but the basis of all confidence in our own faculties would be undermined, and universal skepticism would arrest all action. Man could neither believe his fellow man, nor his own experience, nor senses, nor revelation, nor conscience, nor consciousness, if he could not believe his God. Now, now think about that. You'll remember I opened our sermon by talking about how distrust has become pervasive in America and nobody trusts anybody. I think this is a big part of the reason why we threw God out of society. We tried to banish God from our culture, but what we didn't realize when we did that, we banished any basis for human trust. And until we can somehow regain some minimal fear of God, I'm afraid people are going to continue to distrust one another more and more and more which again spells doom for our nation. Brothers and sisters, let's pray against this. Let's pray that God opens eyes, opens hearts, puts at least, if not bring people, yeah, obviously we want people to come to saving faith, but if not that, just a little bit of fear of God so that we trust one another. 
and not view one another with suspicion and violence all the time? Here's a second application. Second, realize the Noahic Covenant. It undergirds the natural sciences and the cultivation of culture. The Noahic Covenant undergirds the natural sciences and the cultivation of culture. Now, in a way, this application is just a deeper reflection on the previous point. But if the universe did not function in this orderly manner, as it does because of the Noahic Covenant, we couldn't do mathematics, we couldn't do sculpture, we couldn't do medicine, we couldn't do physics, we definitely could not do architecture. All of the arts, sciences, everything that we love so much and benefit from so much, we couldn't rely on those were it not for the Noahic Covenant. I mean, again, think about it this way. How do you know the sun's going to rise tomorrow? I looked this up, and Lord willing, tomorrow at 7.55, the sun will come up. How do you know that's going to happen? You can't just say, because that's how it's always been. Past success does not guarantee future success. Just because I haven't gotten in a car accident for 30-some years doesn't mean I won't get in a car accident tomorrow. So, so how do you know the sun's going to rise tomorrow? If you're not a Christian and you're honest with yourself, you've got to admit there, there's really no basis for believing the sun's going to rise tomorrow. There's no basis for believing gravity will continue to function, that water will still be wet, that 2 plus 2 will still equal 4 tomorrow. But as Christians, we have a promise, and we know that the sun's going to rise tomorrow because of Genesis 8:22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, didn't the universe function in an orderly manner before the Noahic Covenant? I mean, go back before the flood. Didn't the sun rise in the east and set in the west? And didn't it get cold in the winter and warm in the summer? Well, from everything we know, it did. But here's the point. Before the Noahic Covenant, we had no guarantee that things would continue that way. We had no promise that they would continue that way indefinitely. God could have changed up things and made uh, water dry as sand and sand as wet as water if he wanted to, and he'd still be righteous. But now God is covenant-bound to keep creation functioning this way. He's promise-bound to keep this orderly manner functioning until Jesus comes again. You see what I'm saying? And if he ever were to change that on us, he'd be unfaithful. So what this means in part is that every scientist, every artist, they owe their livelihood to God's promises in the Noahic Covenant. Even if they've never even heard of God or know anything about God. They're benefiting from these promises and have done so for years without even realizing it. And again, realize that's there in part, that grace is there in part to wake you up, to move you, to seek to know this God and to have a relationship with him. Additionally, this is why in part we can learn things about, say, math, physics, chemistry, physiology, uh, architecture from non-Christians. Sometimes Christians, when they take the Bible seriously, and what it says about the fallen mind, they think, oh, non-Christians can't teach me anything at all about anything. Uh, you ever heard people talk that way? I mean, doesn't the Bible say that non-Christians are darkened in their understanding? Doesn't it say they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness? Doesn't it say they're blind to the light that's right in front of them? So how in the world is a non-Christian going to teach me anything about anything? Well, the Bible does, in fact, use those terms, but when it's talking that way, it's talking about spiritual truth, about the gospel, Unbelievers are completely blind to the light of the gospel, which is the glory of Christ, the truth that saves. But what enables them to learn things in other realms is in part the Noahic Covenant. Obviously not everything they say is true, but they can discover certain things because of the way that that covenant preserves creation. 
Let me give you a third application quickly of the Noahic Covenant. See in the Noahic Covenant that God's plan of redemption has always been worldwide in scope. See in the Noahic Covenant that God's plan of redemption has always been worldwide in scope. Now, I've encountered a lot of Christians who think that God sort of changed his plan uh, after Jesus' resurrection. They think plan A saved the Jews. But since the Jews reject Jesus, I'm going to go to B, plan B, and now we're going to send the gospel to everybody. You ever hear people talk that way? Realize that is not an accurate way to look at the Bible at all. It's always been God's plan to save a people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And while certainly ethnic Israel had a very unique role in the plan of God, and we believe they still have a very unique role in the plan of God, God's saving desires have always been global in scope. You think about it, God chose Abraham, yes, but he chose him in part so that all the families of the earth would be blessed in him. Yes, he chose the people of Israel, but he chose them in part so that they would be a light to the nations. Yes, the Jews are beloved because of God's promises. But like Romans 15, 8 says, Christ became a Jew in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. You see, God's plan of redemption, it's always been worldwide in scope. It's always been his desire to see people redeemed from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. There was never plan B, and we see that at least alluded to here in the Noahic Covenant. But the question I want you to consider now is, is this global plan of redemption a passion of yours? Is it the goal and the purpose of your life? Do you see the purpose of your life as doing anything, something to help advance the Great Commission? I'm not only talking here about personal evangelism, though that's incredibly important and precious. I'm talking in addition to that about global missions. Seeing unreached people groups worship our God. Seeing the knowledge of God go beyond the bounds of Israel until the knowledge of God covers the earth as the waters cover the seas. That's always been God's goal. And again, we see that here in the Noahic Covenant. I know I've shared these statistics many times before, but I'm going to share them until we've memorized them. We live on a planet of roughly 7.8 billion people. Of that, there remain this morning 2.74 billion who've never heard Jesus' name once. What that translates into is one out of every three people you'll run into on this planet have never heard of Jesus. Not that they're not Christians. They don't even know what a Christian is. They don't even know what a Bible is. Of the 7,000 people groups that exist today, 3,000 still have no access to the gospel. No literature in their language, no churches in their area, no radio stations that they can flip on and hear the gospel. Huge parts of the world where the gospel was once preached with power, and I'm thinking specifically of Europe, have now turned back to darkness, and they need to be re-evangelized. So what are we talking about? We are talking about billions and billions of men and women, boys and girls, who do not confess that Jesus is Lord. They do not believe in their heart that God raised them from the dead, and therefore they are not saved. And until they turn from their sins and trust in the Lord Jesus, only a fearful expectation of judgment awaits them. So I ask you, my brothers and sisters, are you passionate about the Great Commission? For reaching unreached people groups, are you committed to going beyond the bounds of those who have the knowledge of God to tell those who don't yet know, them, know, know God? For example, could you pray regularly for missions? I make it a prayer every single day that God would raise up missionaries, including from this congregation. Could you give more to global missions? Could you provide more encouragement to our missionaries? Write them emails, send them texts, something like that. Could you this year read a good missionary biography to stir into flame your passion for missions? 
And lastly, and very seriously, have you prayerfully considered the possibility that God might want you to take the gospel to a people group that's never heard of him? The Noahic Covenant reminds us that God's plan for redemption has always been worldwide in scope. So what role will you play, either as a sender or a goer, in this great mission of sending the message of salvation to all the peoples of this earth? Quickly, one final application this morning. Lastly, see in God's covenant with Noah just one more stage of that unified promised plan of grace which culminates in Jesus' work on the cross. See God's covenant with Noah is just part of that unified promised plan of grace which culminates in Jesus' work on the cross. I wish we had more time to develop this. This is actually what we spent most of our Wednesday night series talking about. And again, if you want the notes from that, I'll get them to you. But realize the Bible contains one unified way of salvation, one unified plan of, that, a plan of salvation, and that plan is carried forward largely by the covenants. This promised plan really needs to begin with Genesis 3.15. Bring up that slide. That's, this is sort of the bedrock on which the entire Bible uh, moves forward, that promise that God's going to raise up a serpent crusher. But from there, the covenants, they come together like links in a chain with ever-growing specificity, helping us identify who this serpent crusher is. And I find this really fascinating. Again, I get kind of excited about this. But let me see if I can walk you through this briefly. First, the Noe covenant that we've been talking about, it ensures there'll be a human race from which the Messiah will come. I mean, obviously, if the human race gets wiped out, you can't have a serpent crusher. So what does this covenant do? It ensures there's going to be a humanity. The Abrahamic covenant, it identifies the ethnic group from which the Messiah will come. He's not just going to be any old human, he's going to be a Hebrew descended from Abraham. The Mosaic covenant, it identifies the laws and customs he's going to keep. Not just any Hebrew, not just anybody, you know, Ishmaelite or something like that. He's going to be a faithful law keeper, keeping the Mosaic law. The Davidic covenant identifies the specific family from which he'll be descended. He'll be able to trace his genealogy directly back to David, and what's more, his reign will be similar to David's, but better. And the new covenant tells us what the Messiah is going to do for his people. Namely, forgive them of their sins and give them the gift of the Holy Spirit. I realize I'm only whetting your appetite of a huge theme you can and should study for decades. But don't miss this, that God's covenant with Noah is simply one more stage in this unified promised plan of God which culminates in Jesus' death and resurrection. Now to conclude our time this morning, I want to say a word to those of you who might be here today and are not Christians. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, we're delighted you're here. Seriously, thank you for coming. You're always welcome to be with us. There's nowhere we'd rather you be at 1045 on a Sunday morning than here with us, hearing God's word. I'd encourage you to maybe consider coming every Sunday, get some free coffee, grab some free donut holes if the kids haven't eaten them all, make some new friends, and learn more about what it means to follow Jesus. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I reiterate something I said earlier. You have been benefiting from the Noahic Covenant your entire life, even if you've never even heard of it. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that worth exploring? You have been benefiting from these promises made 4,000 years ago, even if you've never heard of them till today. The fact that you haven't been drowned in a worldwide flood, uh, the fact that you're living in a universe that continues to function in an orderly manner, all the gifts of science and culture, they are blessings of grace that you've been enjoying from God even if you never even thought about it. And like I said, part of the reason why God has been showing you that grace all your life long is so that you would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. 
The Bible tells us that God is the loving creator of the world, made this glorious universe, and he made you. Made you in his image to know him and to have a relationship with him. But the Bible goes on to tell us that we've sinned and separated ourselves from God. We've broken his laws hundreds of times, thousands of times, and truth be told, most of the time doesn't even bother us so long as we don't get in trouble. Again, we deserve to drown in that worldwide flood. And yet, the Bible goes on to say that this same God who created us, who we rebelled against, he loved us. He loved the humans he had made, and in his great love, he acted to reconcile us to him. This God took on human flesh. Almighty God became a man and was given the name Jesus. He literally is the God-man, fully God, fully man in one person. Jesus always obeyed, always obeyed God, his heavenly Father. But then he died on the cross, and when Jesus died on the cross, he was taking the wrath of God deserved by sinners upon himself. He took the penalty on himself for all of those who would ever repent and believe on him. You could imagine it this way. Imagine all of God's wrath for all of my sins, your sins. Imagine it's this gigantic flood. Jesus is immersed into that on the cross, and he absorbs it all. So that now for those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. We have peace with God. Three days after his death, God the Father raises Jesus back from the dead, demonstrating in part that our hope is not in vain. And now he's calling you, repent. Turn from your sins, turn from your rebellion and trust in Jesus. Rely on what he has done to be reconciled to your creator. And in conclusion, that's what I beg you to do right now. If you've never trusted in Jesus with the kind of saving faith I've been describing, do it right now. Right where you are. You don't need to walk the aisle, don't need to raise your hand, don't need to sign a card. In your heart, stop running from God. Stop saying, I'm going to live my own way. Thank you very much. Stop and, and turn back to God. Rely on Jesus, his death and resurrection. Embrace his loving leadership and be reconciled to your creator. Again, we are just as sinful and fallen as the generation who died in the flood. You and I, we deserve to die in that flood. And it's only by God's grace that we didn't. So come to Jesus today. Come to Jesus today. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on anything that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, please talk to me after today's service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus today as your only hope, and today begin experiencing God's grace in all of its fullness. Let's close in prayer. Oh, our Father, thank you for your amazing word, Lord. We love it. Lord, it's exciting, it's exhilarating, it's uh, wonderful. Thank you for your word. Lord, we do pray for any of those in the hearing of my voice who don't yet know you. Work in their hearts. Give them repentance and faith. Draw them to yourself. Cause them to be born again. For those of us who do know you, Lord, help us to more understand your word, better understand your word, especially your covenant promises, and help us to live in light of these promises, living and acting as if they really are true, because they are true. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.